When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, and welcome to the President and Bureaucracy Test Review. Um, so our test is on Monday, the 28th, and it's a short one, 20 questions with an FRQ. The multiple choice part will be 80 points, and then the FRQ will be 20 points. So that's how the grading will break down. So when you look at your score on um, Monday, just keep in mind, hey, that's just the multiple choice part. The FRQ part still got to go in there. Okay. Uh, so there are 19 questions on your review and there's 20 questions on the test. There's one question on the test that is purely graphing uh, or not. It's not a graphing question, but it's a chart of some sort and you would pull the answer directly from there. Uh, there is no question to really write it for. All right. So let's go through and talk about these questions and uh, get this review done. Try and keep it as quick and short as possible. So first off, the formal versus informal powers. The question on the test is going to be one of those table questions that you've seen a couple of times now. That's where there is the formal powers in one column and then the informal powers in another. And you're going to have to match up the two that have the correct uh, setup. All righty. So the formal powers uh, of the president, these are the things that are written into the Constitution. They are out there. You can go to Article 2 and you can find them. All right. He's, he can veto laws. He can be the commander in chief or he is the commander in chief. Make appointments. And this is a wide range of appointments, uh, judicial branch, ambassadorships, cabinet positions, uh, bureau heads, things like that. He can negotiate treaties, create pardons, and then he can call in Congress for special sessions of Congress. All right. Um, so those are the official, official things that the president can do. They are, there's no question that he can veto. There's not going to be, oh, let me challenge this veto in the court of law. That's never going to happen because it's in the Constitution. Can do it. Then he has some informal powers. All right. Uh, creating an executive order um, is an informal power. This comes from his role as chief executive and the fact that he is able to give directives to different parts of the bureaucracy, different parts of the executive branch. All right. Um, that would be uh, an informal power. It's not spelled out, hey, the president can do this. It's just taken uh, and it's kind of been morphed into the fact that it can. Uh, writing up executive agreements, those are the things with other countries. Uh, so it's similar to a treaty, except it gets around the Senate approval. Using the media is a, another one the president can use uh, as, as an informal power. Obviously, the media back in the day when this thing, the Constitution was written, there was no big media following the president around. Uh, there might have been, there were stories written, but it wasn't like it is today where he has you know, people who are just following the president. Uh, the legislative agenda, remember the founding fathers did not envision a powerful president and did not really envision Congress taking kind of marching orders from the president. Instead, it was going to be the reverse. But now we've kind of gone in a different direction. And as long as the president is popular, Congress will try and follow along with his his campaign plan and, and promises and things like that. They're going to do their own thing, too, but they'll also address his agenda. So he can kind of set the agenda uh, for what Congress is going to do. Uh, his role as a crisis manager. Obviously, we have a lot more going on than they did back in the day. 
So that's kind of morphed. Uh, remember, the president can make quick decisions versus Congress, who makes takes a while for them to do anything. All right, and then trying to get public policy, uh, the president can you know work with the media to get a public agenda out there, public policies and things like that. All right, so that is the formal versus informal powers. Once again, it is going to be a table question where you have to compare kind of the two. Uh, number two was Federalist 70. Uh, remember, we did a flip grid, so you might want to go back and watch some of those flip grid videos if you're if you're struggling with Fed 70. But Fed 70 crawl, call was uh, calling for that strong single executive. All right, uh, not a a consul or a group of, of, of executives, but just one strong leader. All righty. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And uh, one of the main reasons for that was going back to one of those informal powers uh, that can respond quickly. Okay. Uh, it's like a crisis or something like that. Uh, all right. Three, the impeachment process. So we have impeachment going on to an extent. They haven't made any votes or anything like that, but the process is kind of rolling in Congress. Uh, so remember, there's three things that get you impeached. Treason, which is spelled out in the Constitution. Bribery, which is pretty easy. You take some money, you're, you're uh, committing bribery. And then the big one, the one that's open to interpretation, high crimes and misdemeanors. All right. So those are the three things. Once something has happened, so once the president has done something that could possibly be an impeachable offense, the House has to decide, are they going to do the impeachment? So they have to decide. Now, treason and bribery, once, once again, that'd be pretty easy, pretty straightforward. There wouldn't be as much issue as we're having now. All right. But since we have that high crime and misdemeanor, which can literally be anything, Congress and the House can deem whatever they really want to be a high crime and misdemeanor. Now, can they get away with, oh, you woke up this morning. That's a high crime and misdemeanor. No, they can't deem something silly like that. The American people will never put up with that. All right. But if it's a, a, an official impeachable offense and if something that's actually some kind of wrongdoing that could be deemed as a high crime misdemeanor, then Congress and the House specifically has the ability, has the right to decide, yes, that's an impeachable offense. So the House takes it and they will write up the articles of impeachment. All right. And right now we have the inquiry going on. So it's kind of not to that point yet where they're ready to vote. They're basically gathering evidence and things like that that they can put into the articles of impeachment and then hold a vote. All right. So that's what the House is doing right, kind of right now. Eventually, what's going to happen is possibly, I don't know, they'll have a vote ever since we're so close to an election, but they're going to have to vote and decide, hey, you know, the Articles of Impeachment pass. All they need is a majority. So whatever half of 435 is plus one gets them in impeachment. Once that has happened, it goes to the Senate. The Senate is the ones that hold the trial. They will have witnesses and evidence and lawyers and all that kind of stuff. The Supreme Court justice, the chief justice will sit at the trial and make sure everything's done by the book. OK, that's a fair trial and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, the Senate then has to vote and they have a two thirds number they got to get to if they want to kick the president out. If they do not get that two thirds, then the president stays. The two people we've had impeached before, Nixon and Johnson, I mean, uh, excuse me, Clinton and Johnson both survived. Nixon, I think, probably would have gotten kicked out. But that's impeachment. Uh, ways the president can limit the power of Congress. You know, really, the main thing the president can do is veto a piece of legislation that uh, the Congress sends over to him. Uh, he can also threaten a veto. All right. Um, you know, if he threatens a veto, I'm never going to sign that. Then Congress either, either has to decide, OK, we're going to push forward and we're going to pass this thing and we'll just override the president's veto because it's that important to us. or Instead of doing all that, 
let's make some changes to it while it's still here with us. And they can do that. They can make changes to a bill. If the president says, hey, I don't like this part, I'm not going to, I'm going to veto because of that part, then maybe Congress can decide to, to make some changes. It all depends on if the president's popular or not, really. <clears throat> okay. Uh, but that's the big thing is that veto power. You can really kind of sway uh, them that way. Uh, all right. Number five, describe the president's cabinet. Um, remember, this is at the kind of the basis of it. It is a group of presidential advisors all right, that he has picked to lead these different departments. Um, and they will provide advice uh, on certain issues. They'll also provide leadership to the, the agencies that they're over. OK, so the Department of Justice is going to lead the FBI and things like that. Um, so uh, and at the end of the day, the, you know, they they all have their their place. Uh, some are, are more important or uh, have more of a day to day relationship with the president versus others that are going to you know, kind of be on the side. Um, so. You know, some not to take, make light of any of the positions because they're all important. But, you know, the president's probably not meeting with the education person every day, probably not meeting with the Department of Interior every day, Veterans Affairs and things like that. But the secretary of state, they're meeting often. Homeland Security, they're meeting often. OK, so they all have the different levels of, of importance. Kind of. uh, six, the State of the Union. So the State of the Union is, remember, required by the Constitution and has to be given to Congress. Now, it can be just a written thing, but we have morphed it into this big, giant media event and TV event, and it's uh, it's a huge deal, and everybody can watch it. Not everybody watches it, but everybody can, right, because it's on almost every TV station, TV station. So the main thing to understand about it is, yes, it's given Congress a update on what is going on, but they already know that. All right, because they can they can see and everything's covered so well. But it really gives the president a chance to kind of get his agenda, his vision, his views out to both constituents and congressmen. All right. So that's the big thing about the State of the Union. All right. Uh, number seven, the roles of the president. So on the test, you're going to have a uh, document to analyze a little bit. Uh, but you just got to know the roles uh, that that we we went over. And this is what we did with that. Uh, that thing <laughs> where we looked at Trump's tweets and it's actually a tweet that you'll be looking at and decide on what, uh, what role the president is playing there. But um, remember you got chief executive, you've got chief of the party or head politician or whatever you want to call it. Okay. The chief executive, I mean, uh, yeah, the chief executive, chief economist, um, commander in chief, um, chief citizen, head of the state. All right. And the chief legislator. All right. Those are the, the seven uh, within them. Um, I'm not going to take a bunch of time here to go through every single one of them. There is a PowerPoint on E-Class that has all of those things. So if you are uncomfortable with any of those positions, you can always go to that. Uh, I think it's one of the first things uh, that's on there. There's also a screencast with it uh, that you can look at. OK, um, that has all those and me going over. them. So I'm not going to spend time there. You just have to understand, hey, I got to look at a, a, something of Trump's and I got to decide what role is he playing there? All right. Number eight is signing statements, vetoes and veto overrides. So signing statements, that is the president spelling out, hey, this is how I view this law. This is what I'm going to do with it. All right. It's a power that they've really started to use more because they lost the line item veto. The line item veto, they used to be able to get a law or a piece of legislation from Congress that they had to sign and they could say, okay, I don't like this part. I don't like this part. I don't like this part. And they could scratch it out and make changes to it. Uh, in the 90s, there was a court case against Bill Clinton. He lost the ability. It wasn't 
I mean, it was going to happen to somebody. It just happened to happen to Clinton. But they lost to Bill because the Supreme Court said, hey, that's too much of a legislative power. When you are taking a piece of legislation and you are changing it and doing things to it, scratching out pieces of, of it, that is a legislative power because that's what they do in Congress. So that's separation of powers. That's overstepping. And so they took that power away. So now they use signing statements instead. The signing statement, this is where they explain, hey, this is how I view it. This is what I'm going to do with it. This is how I want the bureaucracy to enforce it and all that kind of stuff. So the president will do that. They will create, they will pass a law, even some laws that they're kind of shaky on. Um, and they'll pass it because, you know, it, it, it stops it from being overridden by a veto. And then if it's overridden by a veto, I mean, overridden by a vote by Congress, they don't get to do this. All right. So if they sign it and they put their signing statement onto it, then that gives them kind of some power, take some power back. All righty. Uh, number nine, the different appointments by the president. Remember the courts, you got cabinet positions, bureau heads, things like that, and then ambassadorships. Those are the three big ones. The most important one is the courts, and it's the one that's going to be the biggest fight all the time, um, especially for the Supreme Court because of the lifetime. Uh, so Trump has made two uh, people Supreme Court justices. Those people are going to be on the, the, in the courts well after Trump leaves, whether it's in 2020 or whether it's in 2024. They're going to be on there for a much longer time than, the, than Trump is president. All right. So that's why it's such a big deal. And just to get on my soapbox for a side moment here, this is why I really think they should do away with the lifetime things for, for judges, uh, especially Supreme Court justices, and make it like a 20-year thing, a 25-year term, something like that. That way there's not that lifetime thing. Okay, and you do survive the presidents, and you don't have to worry about that part. Uh, you still can't get fired, but you just don't have that lifetime thing. Right? Twenty-five years would be a good number, uh, you know. So that's just me personally. All right. So back to the review. Sorry about that. Uh, so number ten, constituency versus presidents uh, and congressmen, how they deal with it. So remember the constituency. That is us. We are the constituency. We are the citizens, uh, and we don't always want exactly what the president. Wants. So the president might want one thing to be done by a congressman and the constituents might want a different thing. So the question is going to be, who do the congressmen side with? Well, they're usually going to side with their uh, constituents because, once again, they're the ones that reelect them, not the president. Number 11, presidential problems with the bureaucracy. Remember, the, the president does not always have the total support from the bureaucracy. Remember, there are people in there that have made it their career to be a bureaucrat, okay, to be a, a government worker, basically. And they don't always agree with the president. There's a term we have for this called going native, where they are more loyal to their their bureau chief, their department head, whatever it might be. Uh, they're basically more loyal to their agency than what's going on there than they are to the president. The problem the president has is he can't go in and wipe everybody out. He can't come in and fire everybody because people have tenure and things like that. And we, we, we purposely did that to protect from the situation. So the president sometimes will have those issues where things aren't getting done because the people that are there, the workers, the, the bureaucrats, uh, don't support him. All right, number 12, the Hatch Act. Uh, the Hatch Act was created to stop bureaucrats from um, taking part in partisan politics while they're in their job. So they're not supposed to use their position in the government to get political, basically. Okay. And they can get in trouble if they do. Uh, we, I use it just because it's so recent, the 2016 election, the FBI director got called in and was grilled over the Hatch Act and the fact that he had reopened the email inquiry about Hillary. 13, bureaucracy job. Once a law has been passed, their job is to enforce it, implement it, whatever you want to call it. 
Uh, that is their job after they have uh, gotten it. The Iron Triangle, remember, is made up of the bureaucratic agencies. And, you know, I'm using very broad here. Okay, uh, congressional committee and then interest group. Okay, those are the three groups uh, within the Iron Triangle, and they have a relationship that we've gone over several times now that I'm not going to go back over. All right, fifteen. The uh, street level bureaucrats. Pretty simple. Those are the people that are going to be on the ground dealing with me and you as the public. Maybe not necessarily me and you, but they're the ones that are uh, here, you know, taking, uh, not taking, but you know, dealing with us. Uh, so I, I've told you I'm dealing with the IRS to an extent. I haven't really talked to anybody yet. Uh, they just send me bills, okay, because of my dad's estate. Uh, hopefully, uh, actually tomorrow, I hope I get some good news and I can get ready to start negotiating maybe some stuff with the, the IRS. We'll see. Um, so anyways, I'll deal with a agent, an IRS person at that point from the federal government. Uh, I'm not going to be dealing with anybody up in D.C., that's for sure. All right, it'll be somebody that's local uh, to my, down in Florida because that's where my dad uh, is from and where I'm from. Okay, uh, let's see. The bully pulpit. This is the president's ability to get public support. All right, it is a tool the president has. He has access to the media. He can go and he can get uh, the president, I mean, not, not the president, he can get the media um, to televise his press conference, and they can televise his speech, whatever it might be. But it's just a way for the president to talk directly to the people. Our current president doesn't like to use the media too much. He'd rather use the Twitter. Okay. Uh, nine, or 17, excuse me, roles of the president and powers associated with it. So this, is, this question is going to give you the roles. And then it's going to give you a power that the president has uh, within that. Okay, so you just need to be able to know what are some things they can and can't do uh, within those things. All righty. Uh, number 18, how can Congress limit the power of an agency? Remember, there's three things they got, really. There's the budget. There is the ability to modify through either law or standard operating procedures they review. Uh, and then they can kill it. Okay. Now. Oversight is another important thing, but it's not going to limit the power. Oversight does not limit the power of an agency. All right. The budget can, the changing of the rules or the you just get rid of it. That changes the power. All right. The oversight is just what they might use to get to this point. Well, we don't like what you're doing, so we're going to reduce your budget. We don't like what you're doing, so we're going to modify. OK, so just keep that in mind. And then lastly, 19, <clears throat> the independent regulatory agencies, the cabinet positions, government corporations, and independent executive agencies. The one most people get confused with is the difference between a uh, regulatory agency and an executive agency. So let's go over those two first. So the regulatory stuff, that is going to be an agency that does some kind of regulation. They regulate an industry uh, or something along those lines. Okay, so think the FCC, they regulate the airwaves. So they're going to regulate TV. They're going to regulate radio and things like that. Right. So I'll never be able to get on uh, public radio and, and drop some curse words like I want to. I'll never live up my dream because they are regulated by the FCC. OK, um, the F, uh, the Fed, they regulate the economy, the SEC, Securities Exchange Commission. They regulate the uh, stock market. OK, so whenever you see an agency that is providing regulation to something. All right. That's an independent regulatory agency. Then you got the independent executive agencies. They generally provide some kind of service. So they're not regulating anything. They're providing a service. So NASA, 
that's kind of a service. They're not regulating space. Okay. Uh, you know, you have people now trying to get into space. There's private companies, Elon Musk and all that kind of stuff. There's no regulations out there because NASA hasn't done that. NASA doesn't do that. All right. So their space exploration is kind of a service. The CIA, they provide national defense. That's a service to us. Okay. So that's the big difference. Regulations versus the service providing. And then you got the cabinet positions. Uh, those are the, you know, the the departments and then the agencies that are underneath them. They do all sorts of stuff. All right. Uh, but they are geared toward their specific uh, area, whatever it might be. You know, the Department of Interior is going to deal with natural resources and things like that. And then government corporations, uh, the Postal Service, Amtrak, the you know, Tennessee Valley Authority, all those things, uh, they are a business. They compete with private businesses. All right. They're supposed to make money and all those sorts of things. All right. So those are the multiple choice questions. Then you got the FRQ. The FRQ is going to be on executive orders, although it's a chart and you have to pull from the charts. I don't really think you have to do spend too much time preparing for the FRQ. It's going to be one of those quantitative, quantitative ones where, hey, here's the chart. Uh, identify this from the chart, uh, whatever. Okay, there, there might be some explanation, but I think it's all going to come from there. So I don't think there's really a way to study for it unless you just want to look up executive orders, study some more. All right. If you have questions, hit me up on Remind. Uh, I'll be up for a little bit on Sunday night. Uh, if you're studying, don't forget your vocab is due Sunday night and your blog posts are due Sunday night. All right. Hope everybody's had a good, safe, dry weekend, and I'll see you Monday morning. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.